Okay, good. I can use my soft voice and it'll be loud enough. So everyone here in present, let's just take a 30 seconds to kind of take a deep breath and ground and connect and really be here. All right. You want to introduce our guest and let people know we have visitors? I don't feel like we need to. All right. All right. So this morning, we're going to take a deeper dive. Yesterday, um, so we're talking about religious identity, right? Well, in the Catholic tradition, which I was so steeped in for the first third of my life, um, there is an idea of distant preparation immediate preparation, and then you really enter into your work to engage with the holy, with the divine, with God, with uh, the purpose that you're called to in retreat. So the distant preparation we've been doing for months, right? Getting ready, getting deeper, doing some of our practice with our volunteer um, experiences and so on. And then yesterday, immediate preparation, really confronting um, presence together, co-presence, living together, going out and having an experience with the cadavers together and what that brought up for each of us and all of us together with respect to death, dying, uh, generosity, uh, human intention, and how that mixes with our practice and ultimately in this place with this gathering helps us become better chaplains. So today, we're going to do some very practical kind of digging and rooting and, and uh, practicing together. So get ready for it. I think it'll be very juicy. And it's the sort of thing at the end of the day where you say, yeah, that was a good program. We really got into some things. And I think I am better at serving others in this role as spiritual caregiver because of it. So with that, I'd like to just say a few words about why is it important for us to be aware of and claim and um, really own the complexity of our religious identity in this work. You know, identity is complex. We're born into a family that either has a faith tradition or doesn't, has spiritual practice or does not. All of that has great impact on us. Um, but that's just the beginning because the beliefs that our family has mixed in with whatever that tradition might be, uh, and the practices that it has or doesn't have, and then the actual faith community we're a part of will really impact how we internalize that, what we take on, what we push away and what our values ultimately become. So let me give you a practical example again from my childhood roots, um, I was in the Irish Mexican Catholic part of Catholicism in a very robust parish in the 60s where 
Everyone was having lots of babies. The whole world was sort of falling apart and coming back together. And my particular priest who led that parish and the nuns at that parish were very progressive. They were post-Vatican II. Vatican II was the shakeup that the church went through in the early 60s that said, we're going to get out of the medieval times, stop saying the Latin Mass all the time, start praying the Mass in the language of the people, and concentrate on what it means to be um, an individual called to change the world for each other and called to social justice. That was my parish. Not all parishes were like that. Up in Ojai, where later we moved and raised our children, there was a parish that um, ascribed to what they called essential truths, and all revealed truth in their minds really ended at the very beginning of the Enlightenment. So there really wasn't new truth, and truth told you in every situation in life what to do, what not to do, and how to be. So... You know, that's a huge spectrum. If I'd been raised in that kind of family, maybe there would have been 12 or 14 children. Um, we probably would have been very poor because that was the implication of those kinds of beliefs. Um, our parish family might have been our only group of friends and a uh, very different experience, right? So you can't assume by hearing what someone says about who they are, uh, what that means. And that's true for us, too. You know, we may have wandered far or intentionally moved away from our birth identity, faith identity, our birth religion. But and we may have given that some intentional thought along the way. But this practice and it is a practice of being a spiritual caregiver, of being a chaplain is an ongoing process of discovery of being made uncomfortable and of finding a new integration day by day by day. You could see why that's important when you walk into a room or you walk into a group to lead in a prison or whatever, to kind of know who you are today. This is why an ongoing practice is really essential if you're going to be representing yourself this way. Because the goal is not to reify or ever have such awareness and understanding that you're certain who you are, but to remain open and curious and non-reactive. So you're really there for the other. For those of you who do any other kind of counseling, um, whether it be, you know, as a therapist or as in social work of some kind, you know that when something comes up and distracts you into your, it triggers something in you and you begin to really be present to your own process. It's, it's much harder to be present to the other. Um, so the more preparation you've done, the more equanimous you can become when that happens and keep your focus on the other, uh, the better you're able to serve in that situation as a rule. So I've told this story to this group before, but hear it now with new ears, with this in mind, this sense of religious identity and um, your preparation and getting ready to dig into your own a little more. When I was a chaplain intern in the hospital um, serving at St. John's Hospital in Oxnard, I uh, 
you know, was very um, proud. I was a Catholic laywoman at the time. I have come so long since then in my understanding of myself <laughs> and what uh, God and the universe want from me. But I, there I was in you know, my little suit with my cross and my notebook, and, and I had my picks with this Blessed Sacrament. Now, if you know anything about Catholicism, you'll know that the Blessed Sacrament, the host which is consecrated to be Christ to, in the world, um, and which is consumed by Catholics in communion, which is the most sacred sacrament in commun- in Catholicism. It's it's a really big deal to be a privileged to share that with others. Vatican II was the first time that lay people outside of a convent or a monastery were able to actually touch the host and share it with others, and. It, the understanding, because we were more concerned again with caring for those in the world, was that if you're sick, you're especially in need of that spiritual nourishment. So I was um, commissioned as a Eucharistic minister, and one of my duties uh, was to provide communion to Catholic patients. And Catholic patients would ask for this. It wasn't like we would just assume they would want it. So I went up into a room. Um, with a with a Catholic woman from one of our local parishes, and I had not met her before. Um, she was very ill. She had some kind of an abdominal abdominal situation going on, so she wasn't feeling very well anyway. Uh, and who is in the hospital? Um, but I walked in, you know, bright eyed and excited, and said, "Well, I'm here. I see you're on the communion list. I'm here to offer you communion today. Um, would you like to receive?" And she said, oh, no, honey, I, I couldn't do that. And my mind immediately, I'm thinking, oh, she's just not feeling well. It must have to do with, you know, her, her illness. So I said, oh, can you say more about that? And she said, well, I think it should be obvious. And I said, it would help me if you could tell me. And she said, you're a woman. She said, I can only receive communion from the hands of a priest. Oh. So the first feeling that I had was shame, shame that I'm a woman and I can't serve this woman because there is no way I could be a male priest. Um, And then very close behind that, just sort of dismay that grew and grew and grew um, into, into sort of an anger. And I'm like, oh, of course I can't express that here. What the world? So I basically... You got it together. I'm a professional. I had had a whole professional career before this, kind of knew how to contain all of that in the moment. Not that it was comfortable, and I'm not sure I was very graceful, but I did say to her, that's fine. I'll make sure the parish priest knows when he comes to do his rounds that you haven't had communion. I don't know if it'll be today because they just didn't come every day. They came maybe this week, maybe next week, maybe if they felt like it, if it was raining and they couldn't play golf. Um, So you never knew. (laughs) But that's what she had asked for. That's what she wanted. I honored that the best I could and said, you know, have a blessed day and left. Um, The next time something like that happened, I was so much more peaceful. But what that threw me into was a whole inquiry of, whoa, what does it mean? Here I feel like I'm in this very hierarchical organization that has given me the authority to do this, and it's not enough. It's not enough. 
wow, what does that mean? Where does the authority come from? How do I situate myself in it? What does that mean if I'm here? I think I'm a chaplain and I can do just about everything a priest can, but not the most important things. So that whole dialogue with myself. And I imagine that each of us who's been raised in a faith tradition has encountered the authority structures of that tradition in a way that has either been affirming or disaffirming, has encountered the beliefs in that spectrum of religion that uh, we can say, yes, I totally believe in social justice. Um, Or, no, I don't believe that truth was finally revealed, you know, by the time the Enlightenment came. Um, That that's all held there because it's it's not uh, it's not one thing. It's dynamic and changing. And we bring who we are to that inquiry and who we are for whatever reason in religions is very often just not good enough. or just not exactly right. And isn't that true in the world? We have limitations, no matter what we're going to run up against our limitations wherever we go. And so um, this is the practice of learning to live with our religious identity and its gifts and its limitations. Does anyone have a question or a, a niggling doubt or something they'd like to say about I really don't think it's very relevant for me to understand my religious identity. Um, or are you open enough and curious enough for us to go forward? Okay. Because sometimes people will say, I just really don't think it's relevant. Can you clarify some components of religious identity? Okay. Just, it may not be what I yeah. would say, but just, just to clarify the So what I mean is who you know yourself to be um, with respect to any religious faith and then how that's come together for you over time. We heard, you know, Jennifer model that a little bit yesterday, and we're each going to say a little more about that in a minute, about being a, a mystical Christian and a Zen Buddhist and an interfaith minister. So that would be maybe the, the words that you'd put on in the most succinct little nugget. And then would to really understand what that means, that would need to be unpacked a little bit. And I think it's important for every person in here to be able to put that lang- that kind of language on who you are. And it might be that I don't have a religious identif- I don't have an identification with the religion, but I have this spiritual practice, and so this is who I am in the world of religious spirituality. Does that help? Okay. Okay. So with that preface, I'm going to invite my co-teachers to give you the five minute um, version of that for each of us, because this can be a really long conversation and it tends to be a really long discussion at the beginning. And by the end of this course together, I think it would be wonderful for each of you to be able to say a sentence about your religious identity and then the five minute, what we call the elevator speech. And we'll actually practice that a little bit today. So, I go first. I had you going first on my paper, so I think we all agree. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you didn't tell me because that way I might have uh, known what I was going to (laughs) say.
I grew up in Northern Ireland where um, Christianity, to a large extent, was the religion. However, it was divided into two groups, Catholic and Protestant, who were um, for a whole variety of economic and political and historical reasons. Uh, in in opposition to each other in terms of beliefs. A little ironic in terms of both being Christian. So that was the context. And then in my family, we were Catholic. Um, in that time, Irish Catholic um, was a devout pa practice. Um, in my family, we had priests, nuns, brothers, uh, Christian brothers. Um, Going to Mass on Sunday was a given. Um, I remember my mother, uh, before I went to school, would read to me from the lives of saints. Um, at six years old, I started going to, to Mass by myself every morning, 6 a.m. Um, However, in the midst of all that, my experience of religion was sitting in a very large cathedral, which was dimly lit, very quiet, and uh, up front the priest would be saying Mass, and then there was a row of widows in those days would wear black shawls, and they would sit up right on the altar rail and say the, the rosary, semi-loud, in a kind of audible but close to inaudible sound. And I would just sit there several rows back and take it in. And, and in many ways that has totally stayed with me, that kind of spacious, inconceivable vastness of spirituality. And um, my first mentor was my uncle, who was a priest, who also was, as I say in Ireland, fond of his drink, <laughs> which nowadays we'd probably say an alcoholic. <laughs> so, uh, and he, he was a marvelous spiritual advisor. Uh, I was pressured by, I went to Catholic schools and they were always asking me, you know, well, do you want to be a priest? And he would say, there's no rush, there's no rush. Don't, uh, don't rush anything, it takes its own time. He showed me what it was to be compassionate, tolerant, and forgiving uh, to others. And he showed me human weakness, you know. Sometimes he'd come around, apparently he'd had a hard time, and he'd sit on the couch and get drunk. And, uh, so that was my... Uh, that was my religious upbringing. Um, as a teenager, I became 
as I think most teenagers do, profoundly cynical, disenchanted, and rebellious. And um, in my early 20s, I took off traveling and discovered Buddhism. So, okay. Yes, part two later, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So, um, <clears throat> yes? I have a, a lot of pain in my neck. Mm. Would it be okay if I lay down? Yes, lay down on those back, on the, on the window seats. And uh, take any kind of cushions you need to make a throne or make a, you know, you can be the, whatever it takes to be comfortable. Or if you want, if you want to bring it into the circle, that's perfectly fine too. We can take that spot to be in the circle. <laughs> it's his privacy right now. We'll, we'll wait until Dal is ready to listen. You ready? Yes. Okay. So um, when I was uh, three months old, I uh, went to be baptized at a Norwegian Lutheran church in Bergen, Norway. And that was the last time I ever participated in a Christian church event. (laughs) When I was 12, when I was 13, my father gave me a a Bible for my birthday. I thought that was, I didn't know why. And he said, this is part of Western culture, you should know about it. And I went through, I don't know, a chapter or two, and there's all this begats, and that was the end of it for me. I... uh, I was raised with a very, uh, what I think or felt, or certainly then felt then, uh, a very secure, stable family unit that was very important for me because, um, in, in retrospect, it must have been important because uh, I changed schools probably 12 times in the 12 years of grade school. And um, it's a lot of moving and all that around. But I was very happy and with all of it and felt fortunate and, and uh, had this stability at home that was not dependent on what was around me. And, um, but there was no religion growing up whatsoever. My parents were disinterested atheists, meaning being atheist was not interesting for them because it was, you know, it was like asking them, do you believe in Zeus? And they say no. And then, so then they become, uh, Azusiists. <laughs> you know, that doesn't make, I'm, you know, probably many of us are Azusiists. And if we go around telling each other we're Azusiists, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, silly, right? So we're, the, in that sense, they were atheists. They just like didn't compute or didn't wasn't part of their their identity or anything because there was no need for it. And um, and uh, I did grow up a little bit with the message that uh, religion was kind of the opiate of the masses. A little bit, I got that. And um, the um, but my father is a um, uh, uh, subatomic physicist and uh, quite brilliant man, and, um, and very rational. And so the idea of the supernatural world was not part of growing up. In fact, the opposite was kind of what was valued. He also was uh, or is um, a very independent individualist who uh, does all kinds of wonderful adventures and goes into the world with great confidence. And so I got this message growing up that uh, certainly of being a self-reliant individual, 
but that the world was a wide open place and uh, free for just engaging in and not a place of fear, particularly. Uh, just the whole world was mine, in a sense, with all the traveling and living in different places we had. And, um, and I remember being about, uh, probably about six or so, uh, laying in bed at night and uh, looking up into the dark of the bedroom and um, imagining I was looking deep into cosmic space and feeling uh, so content and happy that uh, this was my home and I was home. And I felt that when I die, I kind of, I knew I wasn't going back into all that, but there was some emotional sense that I was, that's where, when I die, I return to that home. And so this place of being, you know, maybe the secure family unit, I felt very secure and content with it being in the world and being part of the universe and no sense of fear of death or, the, you know, continuity, not continuity. I felt like I don't continue after I die, but it's, it felt like a glorious thing somehow when I was sick, somehow because of this feeling. And, um, and when I look back at my life, uh, uh, at this time in my life, I sometimes want, I kind of feel like I, life is like, like a dream. And a little bit like a dream, uh, kind of like you look for symbolism in dreams sometimes. And so like there, what were those events that were formative? There were small little things that happened. And now in the last 10 years, I've done a lot of sutta study, uh, reading the Buddhist discourse and stuff. And I remember when I was about 12, my grandmother was a big Red Cross volunteer in Norway. And she helped build a home for, I think, youth with mental illness. And she wanted to see us, see, show it to us, her proud thing that she'd done. And there were already residents there. And uh, we were introduced to a man who was a teenager, maybe a little older than me. And, uh, and his condition, the reason he was there, is that all he did, all he did, really, like absolutely all he did, all the time, was read the Bible. And I remember this dream-like world. I wonder how, how that imprinted me, <laughs> that event. You know, now that I'm doing, you know, not all the time, but, you know, the, you know, I, did, that, did that do something to me? Um, so there's a number of things like that. Uh, uh, I was very struck by the Mormon missions, missionaries who came when I was living in Italy and wanted to kind of proselytize. And I just loved arguing with them about God and... You know, I felt like I could, at 13, I could just kind of talk circles around them. Um, and um, I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, as I got older, the, um, uh, I think, around the time I was 18 or so, 17, 18, uh, something maybe about growing up in Europe and whatever contact I had with the Catholic churches and cathedrals and monasteries there, there was something, I don't know where I came from, but I felt drawn to Catholic monastic life. And I wonder if they would, would, would take me as an atheist. <laughs> and because there were, uh, it, it represented, or I had this feeling inside, it was, a, it was a kind of a physical feeling inside of wholeness, of of profoundness, of somehow the sense of being connected to the universe and I had when I was young. That was like, oh, that's where you do that. That's where that is. And uh, getting up early in the morning, doing the whole thing. That's what I thought. And, and, um, and so I had that kind of draw for that, but it wasn't so strong. 
And then at some point I was uh, uh, pulled into the world of uh, spirituality uh, to very much my surprise. It wasn't part of my identity at all. And it was because I was kind of like, just like, an, maybe more like a post-hippie hippie because of my age. But I um, ended up, uh, I was interested in living in a commune. And I learned about this very big commune in Tennessee with some 800 hippies called The Farm. And, uh, and they considered themselves a spiritual community. And the main spiritual practice was honesty. And I had never, and that just spoke to me. And that like opened me up and I said, what, here I am, I'm interested in spirituality, this is not right. And, um, and there they had the book Zen My Beginner's Mind. And when I read that book, uh, the, the feel, again, this feeling, the, uh, this inner feeling that I keep getting is such an important guide for my engagement with my religious life. And I had this feeling reading that book that this man, was, what was in the book were things that I knew but hadn't yet known. There were already things I knew, but, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, somehow they hadn't popped up yet. It was like that kind of connection. And then I started going into, you know, and then I got interested in meditation and it was really what was happening to me internally in meditation and the change and the integration and the wholeness and the goodness and the, that happened in meditation that drew, drew me step by step into first Zen Buddhism. And as I did it, I think some of the, this rational scientific worldview that I, natu I call it a naturalistic worldview that I grew up in. Uh, and maybe because of my, kind of the authority figure that I, or uh, issues I had around my father and um, being so smart and capable and he knew everything for anything kind of was the feeling I had. That um, there was a kind of feeling of, of, uh, of being a little bit uh, insecure in this religious world because of the supernatural stuff. And uh, I wasn't interested in it, it wasn't, you know, and, um, and so I, felt I could feel myself drawing back from it and, uh, and wanting to kind of, you know, do, do away with it. Luckily for me, probably San Francisco Zen Center, in my opinion, Paul might have a different idea, as far as I could tell in the whole Buddhist world in the West, happened to be, the way it was practiced or lived or talked about, was probably one of the more naturalistic places around. Uh, I don't remember any discussion really about rebirth and all kinds of things. And, and so it, it really kind of worked for me. And, um, but I, I started feeling this kind of resistance to the supernatural because of maybe the upbringing I had. Uh, still, play, still playing itself out in my life. And uh, I still have much more uh, deep appreciation of this dreamlike world and, and, you know, what in the world is going on here? And just very open to everything, you know, and very, very appreciative of uh, people's spirituality and people's connection to the supernatural world. And I tend to want to kind of demythologize it, but I value it so much. And so I, I like it all. But, it, but the, where I still get caught because of growing up, the way I grew up, I think, where I get caught is uh, if anyone comes along, like a Buddhist fundamentalist, and says, you know, this is the truth, and you have to do this, you have to be, a, to be a Buddhist, you have to do this and believe this. That gets my thing going. And some of, some of the work that I do, uh, oddly enough, I don't think people can see it so much because I refer to the suttas a lot in my teaching these days, and they might think I'm a fundamentalist, 
but I'm, I'm exploring the suttas and doing this work partly to fend off the fundamentalists. And, um, and so, you know, that's a little bit, you know, a little bit I'm caught in that. Um, but it's also my hobby and it's also good for my practice to do this. So I put up a little bit with being caught. And, uh, you know, I don't make so, 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 it's not that big and I know it's the case and I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, my son, I provide you absolution for oh, this. Thank you. Larry's Just three circles around the properties okay. and, uh, with the woods. <laughs> that seems more. <laughs> thank you. So uh, I'll just fill in a few pieces of what I said yesterday, um, a little bit chronologically. So my father's Jewish, and he came from a assimilated uh, came, family came after the pogroms from Russia, and we're not Jewish, kind of L.A., Chicago, Kansas City. And then uh, my mother grew up Disciples of Christ in Kansas. Um, so in 1960, they got married. And my father's mother would not come to the wedding because my father married a shiksa. <laughs> yeah. A non-Jew. Yeah. And uh, she was pretty fiery. Yeah. So that's, I think, a, a formative story in, in terms of my family. You know? And then we went to church when I was very young, and my father traveled a lot Monday through Friday. So uh, we stopped going to church to have more family time when I was very young. Um, I don't really remember any of that, there, but there are pictures of me dressed up for Sunday school. You know, And my father was baptized when I was baptized. Um, Today, um, my mother has a really devout Quaker practice, and uh, in a, my father's a Jew who has studied all the mystics uh, and would say, yes, he believes in Christ. So, um, and he has a rabbi for the first time in his life, you know, and he's almost eighty. Then I was a Girl Scout, and um, I think for me, a thread. It was, and when I think about it, it's quite remarkable. So I was in the second grade, and I was introduced to uh, the practice of vowing. So for anybody that's familiar with the Girl Scouts, there's a Girl Scout promise or vow. Um, and it's about uh, loving and serving God in community and being a good person, really being a good person and doing no harm. And even when I think about it, you know, the Girl Scouts, if you had Girl Scouts that day of the week, you wore your uniform to class, you know, mm -hmm. almost like a clergy person, you know, mm -hmm. like something special. And then there, I still have my sash and it's covered with pins and medallions and, and it, the practice of getting a badge was you had to study something and do some things and kind of engage practice is what we would call it now. So I still have it on my altar with my rakasu, you know, like these two sacred garments, mm -hmm. you know. Um, that also, for me, embody um, how I think about myself today as a chaplain. 
So it was a very formative experience. It was also a community of women. Um, and the leaders were really motherly types. And my mother and father in some ways switched roles and have off and on. Um, I grew up in a feminist household, and I remember the tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs mm -hmm. being like, I think probably my version of Vatican II. You know, it was a high, <laughs> holy event. Yes. You know, I remember sitting in front of the, turn this off? Oh, yeah. sitting in front of the television. It was just a really big deal, you know? And, um, Who won? I don't remember. Yeah, uh -huh. we'll get back to that. <laughs> See the movie. Uh, so, you know. Um, and then I think, uh, but there was no religion, no spiritual practice. A lot of 70s progressive self-understanding, um, self-will, and... Uh, by the time I was 13, for various reasons, I did some spiritual seeking and acting out through drugs and alcohol at a really young age, and that continued for a dozen years. Um, in my early 20s, I went off to a yoga weekend, and that changed my life. I kind of jumped the tracks into spiritual practice through meeting a guru in a community. I remember seeing a bunch of women sitting on the lawn eating lunch, in some ways like, um, you know, the group of residents and people that are serving us this week are sitting downstairs in the main room. I saw those people, they were all women, and I had a sense of, I wanna be like those women someday, you know? It seemed far away, but, and I, I went there for three months, within six months of that, and I stayed for seven years. You know, just dove into spiritual practice, yoga, community, a guru, uh, became a disciple with a different name. And that's kind of when I came alive as a person and moved out of my self-destructive strategy to coping with um, a really uh, dissonant and chaotic um, relational, relational home unit. My family was really, still is uh, intense. I'm the laid back one in my family, which is a little scary, I know, but literally. <laughs> I go with my husband and my family, they're like, oh my God, they're so intense. So you can imagine. And in, in practicing yoga, I was introduced to the idea of the divine within, which was so compelling for me. And so counter the opposite direction. So those are some really important early experiences. Um, And I think for me as a Girl Scout, the call to service, the satisfaction of service, you know, has been with me for, you know, almost 50 years, you know, that was planted then. Um, and my parents also being very progressive and interested in, in feminism, for example, was also, I remember being at now meetings with my mother and father when I was a kid in grade school. I don't remember what they were talking about, but, you know, I was not at church, I was at a now meeting. If you don't know what that is, I can explain that to you later, too. <laughs> so that's not the whole story, but those are some significant pieces, yeah. And um, one last thing is, uh, 
something about uh, wounding and suffering really young. I remember I used to walk funny, and some uh, kids in the neighborhood didn't let me pass by. And they bullied me, you know? Um, and I can still feel that experience in my body today, you know? And when I observe or think about human cruelty, um, it's really hard for me, and I'm still working that out, I think. I'm still not suffering, but the dynamic between people. Um, I kind of, and there's a, a scripture around when your heart breaks, uh, it mends, but it's slightly larger, you know? Um, or that God writes a note to you when your heart breaks, the note falls into your heart, you know? Um, and so those are, I think, these are generating forces for me in my spiritual practice and my being a, a chaplain, a minister, uh, an engaged uh, practitioner. Mm. So much richness there. You know a lot about my story, and I'm just going to talk about one piece now, which is how um, I grew from being a, a ordained Catholic priest in an independent Catholic church to having such a vital Buddhist practice that now I call myself a Catholic Buddhist. Um, I was always fascinated by the saints who were mystics, the ones who through contemplative prayer actually were able to say something about their union with God and come out the other side as such lights for the world. Uh, thread through my whole upbringing as extra, extroverted as my family was and as my uh, faith community, my Catholic parish was, I was inside a lot with, with those kinds of sensations and longings and aspirations. So at the time when I um, kind of had emerged from the cocoon of Catholicism into a, a bigger circle of uh, a mystical representation of that in my own priesthood, which was a deep calling that I worked out in CPE, clinical pastoral education, my chaplain training. I, um, after that, went to a meditation retreat. And the surgical precision of the instruction for Theravadan mindfulness meditation was it was like I was kindling that was ready for the match. And that just took such room inside me in that first long retreat that there was no looking back. It was like, oh my gosh, this is what the contemplatives and mystics of the world of all religions have been talking about. And this is the way, this is the way. Um, so that followed with taking refuge and, and so on. And, and the one very tender piece of it that has really helped me bring these two halves that are so different into a whole within me and embody that in my chaplaincy was an experience I had on a retreat, on retreat, where we were, um, meditating with our heart, uh, and it was a mindfulness meditation, but was with the breath and the heart. And somehow, a memory came up for me in my felt sense 
of the moment that the cells that are now my heart began to beat and the knowing that came to those little cells and that tiny little fetus at that point in my mother's 16-year-old body. And my sense was, oh, good. I get to be alive again. I get to be with Jesus in a body. What does that mean, you know? My postmodern rational mind doesn't have a way to explain that. But that created such peace in my heart about both aspects of who I was in my religious identity as a Catholic Buddhist. I could never have had that knowing without the practice. Um, and yet there's something so dear and so big about love and being love for others that comes to me through that relationship with um, Jesus the Christ, that both are true for me. So what I'd like us to do now is take a minute to kind of stand and stretch and move and shake if we can't get up, if however we move our bodies or get more connected to our bodies. And then you'll have a chance to take your five, eight minutes, and we'll time it for you to um, connect with a partner. 